Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. It's hard to imagine two people who disagreed on more than Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. RBG, a pioneering champion for women's equality and hero to the left. And Scalia, a hero to the right who reshaped the Supreme Court and this country with his originalist and textualist constitutional jurisprudence. In their 22 years on the court together, They were famous for their often caustic disagreements. In one biting dissent, Scalia wrote that RBG's opinion was politics smuggled into law. RBG once wrote that Scalia's opinion took a wrecking ball to the law. In their working lives together, there was almost no common ground. And yet, in their personal lives, Their families spent nearly every New Year's Eve together for over three decades. Scalia was, in RBG's own words, her, quote, best buddy. How could two people who so vociferously disagreed be best friends? Well, they were both outsiders. She, the first Jewish woman to serve on the court, and Scalia, the first Italian-American on the bench, appointed at a time when Catholics still faced discrimination. They grew up in the same hometown, in the same era. RBG's husband, Marty, was a master cook. So was Scalia's wife, Maureen. They shared a love of good food, and Scalia always made RBG laugh out loud. In RBG's words, we were different, yes, in our interpretation of written texts. Yet we were one in our reverence for the court and its place in the U.S. system of governments. As much as they disagreed, in their minds, what they shared far outweighed their differences. RBG's lifelong dedication to the law was inspired by the commandment from the Torah Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Justice, justice shall you pursue. And she had the original Hebrew hanging on the wall in her chambers. And she must have recognized that even though Scalia came to vastly different conclusions, that he too was informed by his own faith and like her, a careful consideration of the law. So even though they disagreed, 
They didn't see the other as a bigot, as hateful for what they believed. They embodied the rabbinic principle of Don Lakaf Zahut, that we should judge the whole of a person with the scale weighted in their favor. More simply, when we see someone do or say something that at first glance appears to be wrong or unethical, we shouldn't judge them right away. We should give them the benefit of the doubt that they had good reason to do or say what they, what they did, what they said. Yet in our own age, we have become less and less able to do that. By some measures, America is more divided than we've been in decades. But not only are we divided, more and more we see the people on the other side as immoral. According to a 2019 study by the Pew Research firm, wide majorities in both parties say that people in the other party are more closed-minded. And approximately half of both Republicans and Democrats view the other party as more immoral than other Americans. Not much of a surprise. Because in this new era of social media, of unfriending people whose views upset us, of, cur of curating our news through Twitter and Substack, or only watching MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, too often we just shut out the other side completely so we don't even hear their argument at all. Because it has become more and more evident that the other side is just not like us. They are different. They are other. They are bad. And this is playing out in the Jewish community as well. According to the 2020 Pew Study of American Jewry, it is more important to American Jews that their current or future grandchildren share their political convictions than it is for those grandchildren to be Jewish. It is truly remarkable, shocking even, that for so many American Jews, our political identities, our identities as a progressive or a conservative, are more important than our identity as Jews, this piece of ourselves that has crossed oceans and spanned centuries and that many of our spiritual ancestors died for. On the other hand, though, it makes total sense. If we see people that we disagree with, even other Jews, as morally corrupt, it's only logical that our political tribe takes precedence over our commitment to the tribe. So how might we begin to bridge this gap, to heal the rift dividing our society? The psychologist Jonathan Haidt, professor of ethical leadership at NYU Stern School of Business, who studies the psychology and the evolutionary roots of morality, He's found that it's not that either liberals or conservatives are more moral than the other. It's that they define what is quote-unquote moral in different ways. According to Haidt's research, there are five moral foundations that are common to all human cultures. 
The first two, the first two moral foundations are caring for others and reducing harm. That's the first one. And two, fairness. While both liberals and conservatives care about these two, liberals tend to care about them more. But the last three moral foundations, liberals tend not to care about very much at all, but conservatives do. These are valuing loyalty to one's own group, respect for authority and institutions, and purity or sanctity. Okay, I know that was a lot. It was. So here's a real-world example of how this plays out in Jewish terms based on an article by the Israeli writer Yossi Klein Halevi on what he calls Passover Jews versus Purim Jews. Uh, personally, I like Purim, not for political reasons. I just like the groggers, but I know we each have our own favorite. So in this article, Halevi points out that both Passover and Purim relate to mitzvot from the Torah regarding memory. He says, the first commandment is to remember, Zachor, that we were strangers in the land of Egypt. And of course, we recount this every year at the Passover Seder. The second mitzvah memory is to remember Amalek, the tribe who attacked the Israelites without provocation when we were wandering through the desert. Amalek attacked the elderly and the stragglers in the Israelite camp. And the message of that mitzvah of memory is not to be naive, that we have to protect ourselves from outside threats. Of course, Passover Jews tending towards the liberal side are motivated by that first mitzvah of memory to remember that we were slaves in Egypt and therefore that it is our responsibility to empathize with and to care for the most oppressed in our society. And this aligns with Haidt's first moral foundation, care and compassion. Purim Jews, on the other hand, tending towards a more conservative outlook, they emphasize the other mitzvah of memory, the memory of Amalek and his descendant Haman, who tried to harm the Jewish people. Purim Jews would say that we must be skeptical of the outside world, that Jewish communities need to put our own safety and welfare before helping others. This aligns with Haidt's third moral foundation, concern for one's own in-group. In this example, of course, the Jewish people. But as Reformed Jews in 2022, we know that both are correct. We must care for the oppressed, working to repair the world, but we also can't be naive about the anti-Semitism that we face from both the far right and the far left. And yet, it's easy to understand how our different backgrounds would lead us to different perspectives. Those of us who have experienced the ills of anti-Semitism firsthand have a different outlook than those of us who see up close the suffering of other oppressed or needy people. So is one wrong and one right? I'd like to share a story that I first heard from my teacher, Rabbi Michael Marmer, that is found in both the Hindu and the Buddhist tradition. 
a group of blind men discovered a new strange animal called an elephant. They went to, over to the elephant to try to get a sense of what it was. The first went over to its trunk, felt around, and said, Ah, an elephant is like a, a thick, wriggling snake. The next, who found a tusk, said, Aha, the elephant is very much like a sharp spear. The next man, who had made his way to one of the elephant's legs, said, I don't think so. An elephant is much more like a tall and sturdy tree. And the next one who happened along its side said, no, no, no. An elephant is like a broad and high wall. The last one, unfortunately for him, somehow found his way right behind the tail. <laughs> he took a deep breath, looked around and said, are we talking about the same animal? But what this story illustrates, of course, is that we all live a life that leads us to a certain understanding of the world. We can be quite certain that our perception is correct, that tusk really did feel like a spear. But if we never interact with people with different perspectives, we will never have a more complete understanding of the world. Height's model helps us to learn this lesson in our own lives. If we recognize that the other person may simply be seeing another part of the elephant, that their position might be reasonable given their life experience, we can view them in a different light. Just like RBG and Scalia, even though we differ, we can still be in relationship. Height does happen to be Jewish, and even though his model is secular and academic in nature, it's also very Jewish. Disagreement is a Jewish value. As long as our intentions are constructive, as long as we come to our ideas honestly and earnestly, this is known in Judaism as machloket l'shem shemaim, as a disagreement that's for the sake of heaven. Pirkei Avot teaches that no one embodied Machloket Lashem Shemaim more than two schools of thought, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, who disagreed on basically everything. Over 350 of their disagreements are recorded in the Talmud. Beit Hillel was generally more liberal and open to the influence of the outside world, while Beit Shammai rejected foreign influence and had a much stricter interpretation of Jewish law. One fun example, they famously disagreed on how to light the Hanukkah menorah. Shammai thought that we should start with all eight candles lit that first night and then light one fewer each night. And Hillel said that we should start with one candle and increase to eight. And of course, even to this day, we follow Hillel's custom. But they also disagreed on much more serious matters, like who should be eligible to study Torah, the laws for divorce, and so on. The Talmud, the most important work of rabbinic literature, is not so much a book of laws, but a collection of disagreements about them. Disagreement is part of our Jewish DNA. You all know the joke, two Jews, three opinions. 
But why did the rabbis of the Talmud, why did they include both the majority and the minority opinions? Why does it retain Shammai's opinion, even when the law goes with Hillel's position? The early rabbis must have believed that it's only through disagreement, through airing our ideas and debating them with other people, that we get closer to the truth. In her eulogy for her dear friend Antonin Scalia, RBG recalled one time when he sent her his dissent in advance so that she could get a sense of his argument when crafting the majority opinion. She said, the dissent was a zinger. It took me to task on things large and small. Thinking about fitting responses consumed my weekend, but I was glad to have the extra days to adjust the court's opinion. My final draft was much improved thanks to Justice Scalia's searing criticism. The other benefit of engaging with people we disagree with, even if it's unpleasant in the moment, is that their perspective can show us when we're wrong. If we only live in an echo chamber, we will never know when we've missed the mark. By seeing how another's perspective pokes holes in our own, we suddenly see the shortcomings in our own position. And so this point gives meaning to that old phrase, two Jews, three opinions. Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, the senior rabbi of Central Synagogue in New York, she says that she always struggled to understand this joke. She reasons, if the joke is supposed to remind us that Jews always disagree, it would suffice to say, two Jews, two opinions. So where did that third opinion come from? She teaches that the third opinion is actually created when those two Jews with two different opinions come together and argue in a machloket l'shem shemaim, in a constructive argument. She says, by listening to opposing views, they arrive at a conclusion that transcended either of their original positions. And that, that is the third opinion. When, when we engage with the person we disagree with, both of us come away with an understanding of the issue that is deeper and more nuanced than the one we started with. Hillel and Shammai were perhaps the most divided of our sages. It's not an exaggeration to say that they were as divided on what it means to be a Jew as Reformed Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews are today. Yet even with such a wide gulf between them, the Talmud recounts that their followers would still sit around the table together and break bread, and that their families would still marry one another. What a lesson for us today. So in this new year, 5783, may we learn from them, from Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, May we learn to judge others on the side of merit. May we begin to heal the rifts in our world by letting in more sides of that elephant. And may two Jews, three opinions, not be a joke, 
but a path forward. Can you hear our own? May it be God's will.